The following program, Our Unique Tales, is a five-part series which is being funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland under the Sound and Vision Fund. This program deals with adult themes and may contain audio that some listeners may find upsetting and or unsuitable for children. Discretion is advised. Declan Flynn, an Irishman, attacked and killed in Fairview Park in Dublin in 1982. On the day of his murder, a gang known as the Rollers hid in the park. Their plan was to hide behind trees to rid the park of what they called steamers. On this September evening, their plan ended in a brutal murder. Declan Flynn was savagely attacked, beaten with sticks, had multiple kicks to the head, back and stomach. This man was killed and tortured for one reason, because he was gay. Declan's five killers were found guilty in a court of law in 1983, but were all given suspended sentences by the judge. This decision of a suspended sentence caused outrage amongst many Irish people from the gay community and beyond. It caused a protest march. It took Declan's murder and the legal system's belittling of it to finally make Irish people take a stand. Enough was enough. His murder was seen as the catalyst for the LGBTQIA plus pride movement in Ireland. This year, when you march in a pride parade, or you watch from the sidelines, remember Declan Flynn's name. This series is dedicated to Declan. Hello, I'm Ed Roach, a 33-year-old man from a small town called Mallow. It's in County Cork in Ireland. At the age of 31, after years of keeping my sexuality a secret, battling with shame, self-hatred, embarrassment, rage and mainly fear, I pulled the courage out of somewhere and came out to my family as a gay man. 31 years of living a lie finally came to an end for me in January of 2019. Honestly, it's been the most courageous thing that I've ever done. And I've no doubt that some of my family and possibly even some of my friends are only figuring this out about me right now. Well, there you have it. I'm gay. And I'm proud. This series isn't really about me. It's a series which features some inspiring LGBTQIA figures in Ireland. Each of these wonderful people will be telling their story of what life was like growing up in Ireland as an LGBTQIA plus person 
and what life is like now for them. In case you don't know what those letters stand for, here's a quick lesson. That's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning, intersex, asexual, and the plus. Well, that represents however you identify. This is not my story. It's our story. This is our unique tales. Meet Rebecca Talon de Havilland. Assigned male gender at birth, she became the first transgender woman in Ireland to undergo gender reassignment surgery. Rebecca now spends a lot of her time as a peer support worker for the trans community. She has also started a boot camp for trans women to help them not to have to go through what she went through. I had the pleasure of chatting to this inspirational and lovely woman. She began by telling me when she started to feel just a little bit different to everyone else. So I think I was about three. I was about three. And um, we lived in the corner house. We had the shop. And I think, like, on a Saturday evening, we would get our bath for Mass on Sunday. You know what I mean? And I remember all of that. And I remember um, kind of running around and trying to put my willy between my legs to look more like my sister than my brother, because I'm a middle child. And we're literally, I call us the Irish triplets because my sister is um, 57. I'm in 1958 and my brother's in 59. So, yeah, so at that, and then I used to, I remember being brought down to Frank the Barber's for my hair to be cut short back inside. And I used to go into hysterics. And I often wondered years later, how, I, how, how did I become a hairdresser if I had that much phobia? Well, it was that I didn't want my hair cut. I wanted long hair. And then I'd go back home and put neck curtains on my head. And Granny let me. So, yeah, I think it was from a very young age, I just always assumed that it was okay for me to be me. You mentioned your Granny there, uh, Rebecca. You know, you were clearly very close to her. How much of an impact did she make on your life as a kid and even as an adult? I think a huge impact. You you realise it more as you get older yourself and you become the parent and the grandparent as well. And I just realized that, you know, like my early teenage years, she kind of had gotten very, very angry and that, but we didn't realize back then that she had Alzheimer's, you know what I mean? And dementia and that, that they're the things that can change people's personality. But up to that, um, to me, she was the most wonderful granny. You know, my, my dad had left us, when we were kids, he just abandoned us, like went off and left us. And my mom didn't want to be classed in Granard as the deserted housewife. Do you know what I mean? My mom was the youngest of age and very much a rebel. I think I got that from her for sure. Do you know what I mean? So she went to Dublin, went to college and just got, and then went into catering and all of that. And Granny really was then looked after the three of us until boarding school at the age of seven that I went into boarding school. 
And Granny, to me, you know, I often refer back to my very early days in Granard, and I probably kind of, for years, tried to find that. It was very idyllic. You know, I went down to school every morning with my best friends, and we, you know, and I was very top of my class in school. It was all wonderful. I, I just don't remember anything bad. I don't even remember not having a dad or a, a mum present because mm. Granny played such a great role there. Um, so I think from a very young age, I always wanted to be my sister, really? never my brother, you know. Um, Do so you think your granny was aware of that at the time? Um, I suppose she was aware I was different, you know what I mean? And I have to answer it that way because I knew I was different too. And I knew I always wanted to be a girl, but you must remember it was Catholic Ireland, very Catholic Ireland then. And for me to even have thoughts like that, I'm the devil must be in me. Do you know what I mean? Or there must be something wrong with me. So I chose not to, I kind of put it in the back of my head. But I like, I mean, Granny would have known I was different. The rest of my family would have known I was different. You know, not just, I mean, I know loads of boys can play with dolls, but I mean, I didn't just play with dolls. I owned dolls. I mean, dolls were everything to me. If my sister got a doll, I was furious because... And I was so happy when Action Man came out because that was my main version of a doll. And probably the <laughs> yeah. first time anyone ever turned Action Man into a drag queen because I used to try and dress poor old, poor old Action Man up in Barbie or Cindy clothes. So, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, Rebecca, you know, you mentioned uh, Catholic Ireland. You did go, of course, to Catholic school. Um, your experience wasn't so great there, um, to put it no. mildly. Did you question your faith being in an Irish Catholic school like that, even as a kid, did you question what is being an Irish Catholic to me? What is this? In a weird sort of way, I think it probably goes back to me being the rebellious child always. Um, even though I was being abused by these men, you know, I, I just thought to myself at a very young age, they're not God, they're not Jesus, they're not Our Lady, who I had great faith in Our Lady. I suppose from a very young age, I just looked on them as bad men. It never, like, because then even, like, the priests that I would have known in Granard were very nice. This was boarding school, this was Dublin. I probably maybe in, somewhere in my mind separated the two. To me, Dublin at that stage, boarding school, was like somebody had sent me to hell because it was an all-boys school. Granard, to me, on the other hand, was lovely. And our church was at the top of the hill, and I loved it. So maybe somewhere in my mind I separated the two. But it didn't, it didn't um, put a dent in how I felt religiously at all. Still living her life as a boy, whilst being in the wrong body... Rebecca talks about what relationships were like for her growing up. I suppose from about, I mean, I always, I suppose, had a girlfriend. I'm doing inverted commas with my fingers. Um, and I suppose people should really have cottoned on there then too, because I always wanted to go out with the prettiest girl. And then I always wanted to go shopping with her in Grafton Street and pick her clothes for her. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, the, the the signs were there. And I have to say, my girlfriends, for the want of a better word, um, I suppose they were quite happy with me because I wasn't kind of coming on to them big time, kind of sexually. 
you know, we'd found this kind of, in today's market, most kind of gay guys or trans have a girlfriend. Do you know what I mean? So um, for me, it was quite, I, I felt quite safe having my girlfriends, you know, and I suppose I, if people say it to me now, I wouldn't have thought it at the time. People would have said to me, oh, you were very handsome. You were, you were really stunning. But when you're in a wrong body, all you see is ugly when you look in a mirror. You don't see handsome. You don't see pretty. You don't see anything. You know, the, dys- the dysphoria is already there before you even know what it means or how to spell it. Were you aware, even at that age of 17, 18, 19, were you aware that you were in the wrong body? Did you think that you were perhaps gay? Did you yeah. understand? Yeah, no, I I, I, I knew um, I was in a wrong body because I had, um, at this stage, I knew there were kind of I kind of had some idea that there were drag queens I remember Mr Pussy you know and I mean he's still actually a very good friend of mine now Um, and then I think there was somebody else on television called Danny LaRue you know and I thought well I'm not that do you know what I mean Um, and I just I just always wanted to be a girl and I, I suppose the 70s gave me that that I could dress as close to being like a girl and get away with it and nobody question it at the age of 20 whilst presenting herself and living her life as a male. Things started to get serious for Rebecca and for her relationships. My head was a mess. Um, And I did meet a girl and we got on really well. And I think think she had some inkling about me. You know, uh, at this stage, I think my family did too. You know, um, because I remember even when I was going to get married, Lord rest my mom and my auntie Sybil. They just did everything in their power to stop this wedding. They even went to the mo- the mother and tried to persuade them not to. And at this stage, I was twenty, <clears throat> and my mom could still stop me getting married. I would have had to be twenty one. So I was twenty one in June, <clears throat> and um, we got married in August. So I, I sometimes think that myself. And I won't mention the names because it's not fair. Um, I think we got married because we were being rebellious. Do you know what I mean? And because so many people didn't want us. And also, I know we would have thought like back then, like being 20 and 19, that we were like, we were old. We knew what we were doing. I'm 63 in June. I look, when I look back at my 19, 20-year-old self, I didn't know the wood from the trees. I didn't know anything, you know? And then... If we did get married and then I suppose seriousness started to kick in and obviously there had to be sexual relations of some description and um, a child was born, you know, um, and I was so happy about that, you know, but our marriage wasn't functioning in any way and it couldn't have gone on. And rightfully so, she pulled away from it Um I, I, you must remember as well, back in in 1980, when my daughter was born, by 1981-82, when I was looking for rights to, to see her and have her, uh, you know, have, have, you know, access to her, I didn't have a leg to stand on. You know, it was still, uh, at that stage, I was outed as being gay, and I thought, well, I must be gay, right? And I, I had messed up and fucked up. And I have to say, in my marriage and all that, I have to take full responsibility and blame for that. That wasn't her doing. That was my doing. That was me trying to fix me. That was me being selfish, even at that age. You know, that wasn't her being selfish. That was probably her being kind and nice to me and trying to 
maybe think that she could change me, you know what I mean, in some form or place, you know. Um, she eventually said to me, are you gay? And I remember being really upset because words had been said. Nothing had ever been said before. It's a bit like we were speaking about earlier. When you push things under a carpet, they eventually come out one way or another. Um, and I think that was it. That was the final thing. That was the that was the Pandora box opened. I can't remember. Like, it's so long ago. Like, it's what? It's nearly 40 years ago. I can't remember the... The statistics are, you know, the logistics of it and all that. But I do remember that we split up then. And then I came out and proud, like most people do, you know, um, flying every colour, cropping my hair short, bleaching it blonde, you know, being, you know, total. And then working in David Marshall's, my whole career started to lift off there again, was doing session work. Then I was working with like the likes of You magazine, It magazine, Image magazine designers like Robert Jacob, you know, like Philip Tracy. I did his first photo shoot for his hats. You know, Michael Mortel, you know, John Rocha, Paul Costello, Marie Whisker, I could name them. And this was like 80s in Dublin was what the 70s was. 80s became the fashion boom town, I always call it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, it was genuine, like fashion models, fashion photographers, the Mike Bond, the Day, the Tony Higginses, the Conor Horry, all of this. It was alive, and I was alive with it. So I suppose I hid again, and probably this time under the gay flag. You know, and I did have boyfriends, I had quite a few. Yes, I enjoyed, but it, to me, it almost felt the same in ways as me being with the girl, as being with the boy. It, they weren't wrong. I was. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. wasn't me. So you went to London, right? Um, I would imagine, you know, London in the 80s must have been just like a, another planet, surely be to God. Coming from the middle of Longford, going to Dublin and then London. What was that like yeah. for you when you set foot on London? What, what was going through your head? Do you even remember what you thought? I do. Yeah. It was in, I think it was the autumn of 19, uh, yeah, of 1983. And I just remember saying to London, watch out, here I come. And London, I often tell people now when I do my talks, I say, like, London's great now, but it's nothing like it was in the 80s. Nothing. It was just, you know what, the people... People pulled together. People stuck together. You know, if you're part of LGBT+, plus, there were no tags. There were no nothing. You were allowed to be you. Whatever version of you you wanted to be. Living in London, Rebecca was really on the journey of self-discovery. She was finding herself. She was a hairstylist for Eurovision star Johnny Logan. And life was starting to change. Rebecca chats about the first time that she met a trans woman back in the late 1980s. I suppose it was 1987, like when I was away with Logan and um, we were doing the Eurovision and myself and two of the backing singers snuck out one night to go for a drink. And then we met these two trans girls in a bar. And they were talking, and then they started talking to us, and then they told me what they were. And the minute they said it, now at this stage I was already on hormones because I knew oh, I yeah. could get hormones on the black market. Well, I hadn't really met anybody like me, but I had known of, of that it existed at this stage. But I hadn't actually met somebody 
So actually meeting them was just like, yeah, this is me. And at this stage, I was um, going through all the motions of being on, on black market hormones. I had um, some friends in London that were in the processes of going through like what I was going through. But I hadn't actually met anybody physically that had had lower surgery and top surgery and had totally become a female. So at this point, when you met these ladies, you know, how were you presented? Um, Very androgynous, I would say, at the time. And I suppose like the Irish press, even back then, like, I mean, I don't know why people were so shocked when when the press did get hold of it towards the end, like into the 90s. You know, I was referred to um, as gender bender, Ross Talon. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that I mean, unless you can't, gender, I was bending genders, literally, you know? And yeah. um, so, yeah, so basically, I, I would have had very kind of short crop bleach blonde hair, very Annie Lennox. And at the time, I would have wore, I would have dressed very much like the female models of its day. We all kind of wore leggings, baggy T-shirts and Doc Martin shoes. It was of a trend. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or then I'd wear striped leggings with ripped jeans, like almost like um, ripped to shreds all over the place, you know? Um, you were You were rocking the look. I was rocking the look. Mm. You know what I mean? Despite receiving a lot of negative press attention at the time, Rebecca was starting to embrace herself and loving who she was. Her career was at an all-time high. Sadly, with the highs came some lows. Rebecca's life changed when she was delivered some devastating news. In our lives, especially in a life like mine, We spend a lot of time living lies, telling lies, being a liar, being all of these things. I was told in 1987 in Dublin that I had it. Um, I didn't, I I kept it to myself. I kept it to myself. Um, At that same year, I had been, I also um, was with Johnny Logan when he won the Eurovision Song Contest. My career was at the peak. I was opening a model agency. My my career was at a peak. I couldn't have something like AIDS come into my life. I couldn't have people find this out. I kind of blamed Ireland too at the time. I thought, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, tombstones were falling out of the skies. People were like in advertisements. People were terrified. I, I like I it, I was part of the gay community even then. A lot of my friends were dying. They were coming back from the likes of California, from San Francisco, from all these places that they had gone to emigrate to live their best gay lives, were dying. My best friend was dying. I wasn't even, and that's why I I couldn't believe there's no way I have this. I don't have warts on my face. I don't have pneumonia. I don't have any of the above. And I didn't really find that out until I did come back to London. And when I was going for my surgery, that it was compulsory to get um, an AIDS test. <clears throat> and I got it. And I had to wait about a month for the results. And when I heard it then, I think that's probably when I felt I heard it for the first time. My world stopped. My world 
to me at that moment, at that time, froze. I didn't know where to go with it. I didn't know what to do. They told me to tell my nearest and dearest at this stage that I only had two years to live. I was broken. I was broken. And because I had been such a big, a big personality in Dublin and everyone like, you know, I was like a storm in a teacup. I was like a storm going through your living room. And all of a sudden, I realised myself I wasn't that. I was a vulnerable person. Do you know what I mean? Nobody ever saw that vulnerability because I was too afraid to show it. The last time I showed vulnerability, I was sexually abused in boarding school. I couldn't show that vulnerability to people. That was something that I owned, nobody else. And all of a sudden, it's like anything. I, I just... I crumbled. I crumbled. Did you eventually tell anybody? Did you... Did you share it with your family? I did. Um, and God loved them. They were already in the processes of trying to process that I was having. And we always remember that the, the language was different back then. You know, me having gender reassignment, those words didn't exist then. I was having a sex change operation. You know what I mean? And then I had this AIDS, which was also associated with sex. So I just looked like a deviant, do you know what I mean? I looked like this sexual deviant that just had all these things going on. And do you know what, I, I, to this day, I can never, I don't know how my family, how it must have affected them, you know? And we must, sometimes when we're coming out as these people as being gay or trans or whatever, it has taken us years to get to this pin pinnacle. And we sometimes come out and then expect everyone else to just fall into place. It doesn't happen that way. You know what I mean? We've got to think of our families and how it's affecting them as well. Yes, it's our lives. But if they love us, it's affecting them too, you know? So I remember my auntie Sybil, bless her, um, bringing me to Multifarnham to um, a monastery thinking that that could probably help and maybe exercise it all out of me. Now, she took me in, in... I'm trying not to be upset here because she took me because she loved me. You know, they thought... They just thought I, at that stage, was kind of like a hopeless case. And once again, it was before internet, you know? It was before we could even look up these things. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't die after two years and I managed to get my operation in 91... I had to pay extra money for that. I lived. But sadly, by the time I had gotten to that stage when I should have been at my happiest, I had been so damaged with, with media, with family, with loads of things that I was very toxic at this stage. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That yeah. <clears throat> that person that had set out on this journey very innocently when I think of it now you know what I mean and thinking like Landon in London hey London watch out you know what I mean every corner of positivity had been knocked off me I had become at this stage I had become a prostitute I had become an alcoholic I was a heroin addict a crack crackhead I was picking butts off the street in Soho because I didn't have money and yet, you look back, and I, like less than a decade beforehand, 
I was the gender bender Ross Talon who was so colourful and could do everything in Dublin mm. to that and all I ever wanted to do Ed was be the woman that's sitting here talking to you today I paid the highest price anyone could ever pay to be sitting here today Although she has lived an incredibly difficult life, she managed to take control. She got help and made the changes that were needed for her to be that woman that's sitting here today. Fast forward to more recent times and life is very different now for Rebecca. The child that left Granard at seven never got the chance to go back at all. Do you know what I mean? I do, and be, I do. be just me. And yes, yeah, so Granard holds a huge, huge part of my heart. And I suppose the upside of it all was, was last this time last year, when I received an email from the guard that she had called in Granard, a message, and then to ring them. And I said, Jesus, what have I done? My, of course, my head, are they going to lock me up? What have I done? <laughs> What have I done in my past that I've forgotten about? Anyway, all they wanted was that if I would come over and that they were starting their first LGBT plus community, um, you know, like service within the police, within the Garda. And it was held in John Beach and I, I showed up. And the oh. commissioner from Dublin came down and everything. Everybody from Granard showed up. The Sunday World was there, Eugene Masterson. And I just stood there and I was talking. I thought, do you know what? You can give me as many crowns or as many tiaras as you want. You can give me whatever. But to me, this is the best high I've ever had. You know what I mean? Be in my hometown as Rebecca with my sister there, my nieces there, family friends there. And for somebody, a farmer to come up to me and say, I read all about you in the Sunday world. Jeez, I didn't think much of you back then, but... I have children now and I have a son and he's come out to me as being gay and I wanted to come along here and see if this was a safe place for him to come. And I just went and come here and I just gave the farmer a hug. And I just thought, you know what? Whatever I've had to go through, whatever pain, whatever suffering, whatever joy, this is why I am here and this is why I do what I do today. You know, working in... And now I work for Chelsea Westminster Hospital you know, in 5016th Street in Soho. And I'm a peer support worker and I started a boot camp for trans women to help them not to have to go through what I have to go through. And I just stood, I remember I've been 60 and saying, I can finally say for the first time in my life, I am happy, I love me. And the only thing I think is that you shouldn't have to wait to be 60 to discover that. What would be your message to anybody listening today, maybe finding themselves in the situation that you were in, in your teens as a kid, feeling that they too are in a place where they don't feel like they're in the right body, they're not in in the right headspace, and they're probably struggling right now? Great question. I wish I was asked that more when I've been interviewed in the sense of, um, yes, it's a different time, a different era, different a different century, different millennium. But when you're coming out and you're finding yourself, it's still very much the same. Do you know what I mean? The only thing is that if I was, I, what I, I always say this, um, if I could tell my younger self, 
we'll say my 15 or 16 year old self and we, I was in today's market I would get on the internet I would find out you know the sport groups and all of that and anybody that wants they can actually message me even on Twitter at Bex de Havilland and I will get back to them and I will direct them in the right way Thank God that we have those services today because they weren't there for me. And you know what? I often think if they had been, how different my life could have been and would have been. The one thing I would say is it doesn't necessarily mean that you are transgender or that you are gay or that you're anything. But if you have these feelings, reach out, find out and put your own mind at rest. And then if you are and you are going that journey and your family... You know, be kind to your family as well, because as I said earlier, it took me decades to really come out. Um, and then when I did, I thought, well, I'm out. Why, what's, why aren't you all, you know, why aren't you all out with me? <laughs> yes. Be patient. Be patient with other people and allow them. Like, I mean, for ages, people would misgender me, my family. They would call me Ross instead of Rebecca and I'd go crazy at them not allowing them to have time. And I remember actually, I think one of my family slipped up there last year by accident. And I saw them put their hands up to their face and their face went white in horror at the, the, and I I just put my, I said, I am so sorry that I've made you feel like that about me. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Today, to me, it doesn't matter if somebody does misgender me. I know who I am and that's what's important. We need to know who we are because as soon as we are happy with ourselves, and we love ourselves. Then the other stuff, like people misgendering you, that's their stuff, even if they're doing it maliciously. It isn't your stuff, you know what I mean? And you know, like you, you could be fighting that battle till, king, till kingdom come and not win it. <laughs> Just get yourself in a good space. You know what I mean? Get the right, the relevant information, the right people behind you. Take time doing this. You know, it was. It didn't come out overnight. It's taken time for you to even come to this stage. So, if you are at that stage and you want to find out more, please, please feel free to reach out to me. Please do reach out. Ask for help. Seek support. Don't suffer in silence. No matter how difficult life may seem things will get better. Rebecca is proof of that. The trans community face many inequalities in this country. Life can already be tough enough. Be their ally, not their enemy. These are our unique tales. been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode please visit the spin website for further information and resources or contact the national lgbt helpline at lgbt.ie or call 1890 9953 our unique tales is a five-part series which is being funded by the broadcasting authority of ireland under the sound and vision fund this is spin